Depression is a subject, as many of you know, dear to my heart. I studied it intensely for 45 years, 43 years. Started working with it when I was five years old. That was when I had my first suicidal thought, was at five. And uh, about three years ago, uh, for whatever reason, I think through a lot of practice and therapy, the uh, headlock that depression had had me in all my life ended. It was like the headlock, it just came loose. And what, it's not a magical thing. And I wouldn't want to say that there's absolutely no depression in depression never exists again. But what happens is when it comes, it's no more me than this window. I still might wake up and I still might feel that heaviness in the body. I'm sure some of you know it. There still might be these negative thoughts that want to come visit. But they move through. Because for whatever reason, the identification, that headlock of identification I was in, for 40 years, 40-some years, it broke. And it broke because I saw that depression was a story and I didn't need to tell that story anymore. It was done. And it wasn't done from a place of me saying it was done. It just was over on its own accord, actually through sheer exhaustion. My teacher, Ajashanti, talks about, you know, we really get to where we come in the practice through failure. We just, we wear ourselves out. We just fail and fail and fail. And finally we're like, okay, I give up. <laughs> it's not like some, you know, highfalutin spiritual thing. <laughs> it's because we get exhausted, and that's the way it was with depression. Just over and over go. Again, you know, 20 years of retreats and therapy and working with it. I exhausted it to death. Thank God. But the beauty is, it's, it's not like this is anything special. You know, it's there in every moment how we can not identify with the depression. That's the key. And the state I'm talking about is just that breaking that hole that depression has. And now it doesn't need to be depression. It could be anxiety for some of you. It could just be our addiction to thinking, the worry, the anxiety, whatever it is, whatever your, uh, you know, your motion of choice is that you, that has you in the headlock. So there's a couple of things that I'm going to be drawing a little bit from Western psychology and also some from meditation. So with Western psychology, uh, one of the things they found over many years of looking at depression and researching it is that our cognitions make a difference. So the first thing, and one of the things I talked about in the class that I worked with with depression, which was a day long, is the acronym R, A-R-E. And the A represents awareness, the R represents rebuilding your cognition, and the E represents egolessness. And I'm going to talk about aspects of each one of these. And it really in some ways follows that typical train that mindfulness takes. You know, any mindful awareness, it takes awareness, you know, reconstructing the way we look at things and our assumptions, and then eventually moving to that place of egolessness. So the R part, the A, A of R acronym, the awareness. What are we bringing awareness? First, we're bringing awareness to our beliefs. And when the research that looks at depression, one of the key things, and if you remember one thing about beliefs from tonight, it's that 
catastrophizing beliefs are the core of depression. And the people that can work with recognizing when they catastrophize and stopping themselves from doing that is a real key. And we're not talking about deciding to be positive and think positive. We're just talking about recognizing when you're catastrophizing and seeing what the other choices are. And part of catastrophizing is generalizing. So one small thing happens, and those of you who've worked with depression know, you know, all right, you, you, you go for a job interview and you don't get it. And what can happen if you're, if you have a depressed mind, you start to catastrophize and all of a sudden you're never going to get a job and you're on the streets, you're a bag lady or a, you know, a homeless person. And it just can go from there. So recognizing when something small happens and we catastrophize, just having, bringing that awareness to it, not letting it snowball is a key in the awareness piece. There's also awareness, so there's awareness of beliefs. There's many beliefs we can be aware of in working with depression. That's The catastrophizing is just a key one. So I'll just mention that. There's recognition of triggers. Depression happens for because of causes and conditions. And oftentimes environmental triggers are a key. I spoke about before that there's this acronym in the 12-step program called HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When any of those things are happening, HALT. <laughs> you're, you're likely to experience depression when those things are happening. If you take care of some of those conditions, the depression can not have such a strong hold. So to start to look at triggers, and there can be environmental triggers, like in the HALT acronym, or there can be emotional triggers. You know, going to visit your family, great trigger for depression, <laughs> your family of origin. <laughs> going to a high school reunion. <laughs> There's also awareness, and this is a very subtle thing, of the filter of depression itself. And one of the things I found that was very, very important in the many years of my meditation practice was making the mental note of depressed mind and just starting to say, oh, this is depressed mind. You know, when it, you wake up in the morning and it's just right there. You should have gotten up earlier. How can you da 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 just over and over and over again? And when I could just go, oh, this is depressed mind. Depressed mind is like this. It's like a filter. And the real difficulty with this is it's very hard to see through a filter when you've been looking through it your whole life. It's very hard. So this one's more subtle. But to, if you can, when you can, to be, to just ask yourself, well, could this be the depressed mind talking? Someone said it's called depressive propaganda. And you know how convincing propaganda is. Until you just go, hmm, this sounds a little extreme. <laughs> when it starts to have that tone of being extreme and catastrophizing, that's a clue. Ah, depressed mind is operating. And the minute you make that note, you have at least a moment of relief. Oh, it's depressed mind. It's like, Mara, I see you. Mara, I see you. Depressed mind. Mara's the great trickster in Buddhism. <laughs> so there's awareness of those three areas, beliefs, triggers, the depressed mind itself. In the acronym R, the R portion is rebuilding, reconstruction or rebuilding. So once you start to see the depressed mind, it's what can you, what else can you do in it as a substitute to depression? It's not like you can just remove that and expect to, you know, it, if there isn't anything to replace it with, it's hard for it to go. 
So reconstruction. Reconstruction really and rebuilding is really about what you practice, you get better at. Have you ever noticed that? You practice the violin, you get better at it. You practice depression, you get better at it. You practice non-depression, you get better at it. And the beauty is, there's been a lot of research in the last seven years with uh, Richie, Richie Davidson and a lot of different scientists looking at what's called the neuroplasticity of the brain. And they're starting to find that you can change how your brain works. You can change you know, activity in certain areas of the brain through meditation and through mindfulness. You can actually alter your brain your brain patterns. They're neuro, they're plastic. They're flexible. So it's really good news for people with depression. You not, don't have to be stuck in a certain mindset. The issue with reconstruction is we've got these really deep grooves going. So how to build new grooves? One way, and this ties into the awareness piece, is to start doing inquiry with our beliefs. Our mind lies all the time, especially the depressed mind. The depressed mind is a wicked liar. (laughs) It exaggerates. It's mean. It creates a civil war. It's got its endearing qualities, yes. But it's not a very nice frame of mind. So a gentle way to work with it, it's not about extricating the depression. Where would we, where would it go? You know, it's not like we can send it to the dump and bury it and then it's gone. Like I said, it still comes back to visit, but I don't make it about me anymore. So how does one do that? One of the key practices that I found is inquiry with the negative beliefs. So when one of these negative beliefs comes walking in, it's like, all right, can I absolutely know that's true? This is a question Byron Katie uses. You're never going to find a job. Well, can I absolutely know that's true? You know, I've had a job before. No, I can't absolutely know that that's true. And then another question is to ask myself, what are the other choices? What, what, what might be something else? What's another possibility of what I could believe? So again, working with depression isn't about slapping on positive beliefs on top of it. They found it, you know, through research over the years, it, it's about looking at things. They, they say, what's, what's reality? I don't really like that word, but it's like, you know, what's, what else is true? What are the other possibilities? So it's more like having a wide range. Remember there's that filter thing. Whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever it is, we have that filter. So how can we start to see what the other choices are, what the other possible ways of seeing are without that filter? So one is just to imagine. So somebody says, is mean to me, and I might immediately assume, oh, they don't like me. I mean, that's a common thing we do, right? So another possibility, I can say, can I absolutely know it's true that they don't like me, they're mean to me because they don't like me? No, I can't absolutely know it's true. What other choices? What's the other possibilities? Well, maybe they're having a really bad day. Maybe I misconstrued meanness as actually fear. 
In my work as a therapist, I work with couples, and oftentimes people blame each other and they jump to conclusions about that person is blaming me, they're angry, they're out to get me. And really their partner is afraid. They're scared, they're vulnerable, and if you help people reframe and see what's really happening. So there's inquiry as a way to rebuild and reconstruct your beliefs. And this You could spend like a lifetime on this, and really Byron Katie has some great stuff on doing inquiry work. Another piece on rebuilding is the present moment. There's a, there's a really wonderful book on mindfulness and depression, working with mindfulness and depression, by Siegel and Teasdale. And they talk about one of the key components that makes it different than cognitive therapy is that sense of the present moment, using the present moment. One of the key things that the depressed mind does is it creates a future. It creates a past and it creates a future. And the future is where you're going to screw up into, into infinity. You know, it's, it's great. Depression, you know, the future is a great fuel for all the things that could go wrong. <laughs> so what, you, what a component in rebuilding with your beliefs and your thoughts is to bring the future, bring it all back here now. Close the gap. Right here now. Ask yourself, you know, when the mind starts to get depressed, am I okay now? Or let's just, you know, can I just make it through today? Or this hour? Or this sit? We don't need to make it into this huge, lifelong thing. Just, just now. Is now okay? Can we be okay now? We really just stay in this present moment. Is there really anything such as depression when you're really just with the body sensations and who you are now? In the moment, there's no label. So to stay out of the future, you know, catastrophizing involves a future. One of the teachers that's popular around here these days, she, Jan Fraser, she says, fear needs a future. It's a great phrase. So in order to be afraid, you need a future. The third part of reconstructing our beliefs is working with pleasant and neutral sensations in the body. And we're actually going to do a little exercise with that. One of the things that happens with a depressed mind is it loses its ability to see and feel pleasant and neutral experiences because it's almost like the the depressed mind has this magnet for everything kind of dark and difficult. And it tends to just go in that direction. And then we're missing out on this whole series of things that happen in a day of our life that are neutral and pleasant. You know, people say to me, oh, I'm depressed all day long. And I'll just say, okay, so when you were drinking a glass of water, were you depressed? When you were brushing your teeth? Can you absolutely know you were depressed at that moment? How about when you were asleep? That's eight hours. We're not always, like, we're not chronically depressed when we're asleep. We might have bad dreams. But can we know we're depressed when we're asleep? When you're taking a pee or a dump, (laughs) you're generally not depressed. You're focused on something else. (laughs) So there's one moment. There's many, many moments. But part of the depressed filter is there isn't the tendency to look at those moments. We're looking over there, you know. We, it's like one of the Tibetan teachers said that um, 
looking at the world through our mind is looking at the sky through a straw. That's like the depressed mind, too. We're looking over here through this tiny little straw going, the world's really a small place. It's not very good. (laughs) So how to take the straw away? See the whole picture. So one uh, technique that's, or one meditation practice that's useful, that can be useful for people with depression or any kind of strong emotion, it really applies to any emotion, is something that's called pendulation. And it was originally used by Peter Levine in helping people heal trauma. It's a body awareness practice. But most recently it was actually taught to me by a teacher named Utejaniya, a Burmese monk. It's actually Chinese Burmese, who uh, he worked, he found that one of the ways to work with depression on the meditation cushion is to use this practice. And one thing I just want to say about depression and meditation is it's a very tricky thing because what you bring mindfulness to makes it stronger. And that might be good news for knee pain that is going to move and shift, and it might be good news for pleasant emotions, but for somebody that has depression and is starting to drown in the depressed mind, as you start to bring your awareness to the depression, it magnifies it, and then your awareness can't keep above water. So what Utejani and I talked about is the importance of maintaining a neutral witness that can see the depression because otherwise the the mind that notes the depression begins to get depressed itself and it just starts to collapse inward like a black hole. So there needs to be a witnessing function that can stay without that filter. So the pendulation exercise is a way to keep the witness clean as clean as one can. Keep the witness neutral. And one last thing about this practice and what I've been talking about with rebuilding. The whole idea is, and Utejani has said this to me, and it's, it's been true to my experience, that It's not about pushing away and it's not about indulging. And the metaphor for this is that you, you might be, you might, it might be pouring rain out. You're outside and it starts to pour rain. You accept that the rain is happening and there's nothing you can do about it. But yet you take steps to move out of the rain. So depression is like this. It comes. It happens. It's not our fault necessarily. But yet we take steps to move out of that rain when we can. And one is this exercise we're going to do, and the other is looking at the beliefs and looking at, you know, inquiry and coming back to the present moment and all the things I'm going to, I'm talking about tonight. It's wisdom. It's not aversion. We're not moving away from the depression through aversion. We just, we know that it's there. And we take appropriate steps, as you would to get out of the rain. It's that simple. So let's take a minute, and uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes to do a meditation. So bringing your awareness to your body. Seeing if you can find in your body a place that's safe or neutral. There might be a number of places, but pick one. Sometimes people find the, their feet resting on the floor, the bottoms of their feet, the palms of their hands. Some people, it's hard to find any place, so they feel the hair on their head or their fingernails. Let's see if you can find one place that feels safe. For some people, it's that still point. 
that center of the body. Feel the neutrality. Feeling the sensations. Bringing your awareness and attention to this bodily place that feels safe or neutral. Let yourself really feel it in the body. And then moving to a place, seeing if there's a place in your body where you might have some tension. Maybe it's a place where you tend to feel depression or anxiety or whatever your emotion is. Just going to that place and touching it for just a short period of time, noticing the sensations and how they might move or change. Then coming back to your safe place. Feeling the sensations in the body of this safe and neutral place. And once again, returning to that area where there was tension. If it's in a different area, that's all right. Just feeling that tension. Touching it. Noticing the sensations and how they change. And then returning to your safe place. Feeling the sensations in the body.
letting yourself rest and relax into this safe place again. making sure you're breathing. And lastly, knowing that from this place of safety, you might be able to still feel the place of difficulty. But sitting in this place of safety, just knowing it's out there, almost like scanning the horizon while you sit in the bodily sensation of safety. Just knowing it's there, but you don't have to go there, you don't have to feel it. You can watch it, give it like a sidelong glance from this place of safety. You don't have to get involved with it. seeing how that is. If it's too difficult, just focus on the place of safety. And if you can do a sidelong glance, then great. Meanwhile, maintaining your position of being in this seat of safety, of protection, of neutrality. Just take a few more minutes. Being present with what it's like to rest in this place. Feeling the bodily sensations from the safe place. When you're ready, opening your eyes. So the idea with this practice is to titrate the amount of difficulty we experience rather than we just start a meditation, we plunge right into it. That sense that you can have a place where you can feel safe and connected to your body and you can visit depression. And they found, actually, Peter Levine has done a lot of wonderful work on this, that the healing, he uses this for trauma, the healing comes from not just staying in the safe place and staying stuck there. It comes from the pendulation back and forth between the difficulty and the the safety and the difficulty, safety and the difficulty like the wings of a bird. They can inform each other, and you can have control over how much comes or goes. In the sidelong glance piece, Utejaniya also used that sense that we can be in that seat in our body where it's safe and we can see the difficulty. They use this in somatic experiencing. They, They talk about my body can be anxious, my mind can be anxious, but I can be okay. When they mean I, they mean this deeper sense of I, this this deep, safe place that we can experience. <laughs> it's a lot out there <laughs> and how to find that place of safety. 
So the last part on working with depression, it's not something I can talk a lot about, but because it's not about techniques or <laughs> things to do, but it's about egolessness. It's really starting to recognize that our true nature is not depression. It never has been, and it never will be. And if if you need proof about this, look at a newborn. A newborn that hasn't been traumatized in any way. They're not depressed. We weren't born depressed. It, we we learned somewhere along the line it, it started, got created. So part of this egolessness is looking at what can you trust in you? What what is it? What is your true nature? What can you find that's not what can you know to be true about yourself that's not the depression? Where's that spark of radiance that Adjashanti talks about? That inner spark of radiance. What is that? And it's starting to turn more and more towards your true nature, to what you know to be true, this presence that we all have. It might be tremendously covered over by depression and anxiety. It might be really buried, but it's there for every one of us. Nobody's left out of this. Our personalities might really cover over this truth of who we are. So seeing if you can look beyond the depression. Okay, this is, this is part of this egolessness. Look beyond the depression. When you look beyond it, what else is there? And the last thing I want to say about this is asking yourself the question, if I couldn't make the depression a problem, or the anxiety, or whatever it is, if I couldn't make it, if it wasn't a problem, what would it feel like? We go around assuming our whole life that depression is a project we have to fix, and change, and make better. What if it wasn't a problem? What if it wasn't our problem? What then? Where would be, what would be left? it wasn't really a problem any more than this window is a problem. So I think that's probably good for tonight. Maybe let's sit for a minute. There wasn't anything such as depression or worry. These were all stories. Who would I be right now, right in this moment? There wasn't anything such as depression, worry. What would it feel like? without all the stories.
There's a few minutes if people have questions or anybody wants to go, they can. There's some people that have questions and want to stay. We've got maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. I was wondering if you have any uh, advice for people who live with depression. Mm. Did you hear that? She asked if uh, I had any advice for people that live with people with depression. takes a lot of compassion, patience. I think to be careful not to buy into their beliefs and story, but in a way that's gentle and curious and light. So you don't want to make the person with depression wrong or feel guilty, <laughs> and yet, you know, my partner's really good if, if I have, if I'm having a bad day, he'll just like tease me, you know, he'll say, well, he just kind of joking around and it always gets me through in a very sweet way, you know. Yes. Yeah, when you're with when you're in relationship with someone de- with depression, basically there's a third party. It's you, your partner and the depression. There's a third party there. It's a little bit like an affair. <laughs> I mean, I don't I say that in a flippant way, but but you are really dealing with another entity that almost possesses the other person. So it's very tricky. It's very tricky. I mean, you know, when you're confronting somebody that's got an obsession going, whether it's another person or... It's very tricky. But just to recognize that there is a third party in your relationship and what our skillful means to work with that third party. If the person's not in therapy, I would really recommend that they are. And if they're suicidal and they need medications, you know, to to support the person in that. It's a very, very tough road. And I can't really speak to it because I haven't been, I've been the one. <laughs> but I don't know, does anyone else have anything to share about that? Yeah. Stuart? Mm, nice. Did people hear that? Yeah. He said to keep acknowledging them as okay, the person that you're with. It takes tremendous love and compassion, just relentless love and compassion. <laughs> You'll be a bodhisattva by the end. <laughs> Did you want to share anything else? about working with your partner or your friend? Um, well, I had depression myself for about 10 years, so um, this person is not my partner. This is somebody who is my husband. Mm-hmm. I, I, having had depression myself was really kind of difficult for me to be He just made me think of something. It's seeing through the depression to their true nature all the time, over and over again. So even though the depression presents itself, see if you can see through to the true nature and talk to the person's true nature. Talk to their essence, because then that will fuel their essence. I just want to speak to that point. I mean, I know when I, I've been in just really 
bad shape and really unhappy and went to a therapist and thought I was the worst person and, and they just treated me like, you know, a fine person. It was just so healing just to, for a person to relate to me not as the way I saw myself but just as like a beautiful, normal person. And mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful for anyone mm -hmm. going through any difficulty. Nature. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it's true. That's nature's so great because the trees aren't depressed, you know. Animals don't get, <laughs> they might have grief, animals sometimes, but they don't, they're happy. <laughs> Our golden retriever, just every morning. We can leave her alone like all day, and the minute she sees us, oh, yes. <laughs> Whereas humans would be like, I'm not talking to you. You left me alone all day. <laughs> yes. They might feel bad, or they might have a bad feeling, that might break. But I didn't see the need for talking about it. Or mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know, maybe they're so overwhelmed by it that, you know, it's like first they need in their life that they need to talk to. Mm -hmm. talk sure, yeah. It is. It's a negative filter. Unconditional love. Sure. Yeah. They're showing you what their world is like. So when you feel that shut down, they're giving you an example of what their world is like. So unconditional love. <laughs> it's an amazing practice. And, you know, if the person is in danger of hurting themselves, you take action and you use wisdom. So it's not unconditional love, you know, as they're, you know, about to, you know, take a bottle of pills. But on the day-to-day -day basis with that negativity, unconditional love, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's, that's your, <laughs> your path to <laughs> bodhisattvahood. <laughs> And what a gift that you just visit there, that you don't have to live there. It's a great gift. And eventually that person will start to get curious about how you see the world. One day they might go, geez, how do you see it? How do you keep so happy? <laughs> they might. Yeah, yeah. So that's... <laughs> That's good. So they're they're starting to be curious. Yeah, but I wonder if it's not more like how I like what you said, not compromising the depression and depression or anxiety. It's more anxiety and depression, I would say. 
constant glory and kind of covering it up. All of that everything positively that will change. The worry and the depression need a need, and the person has to see what need it's meeting. They have to see what need it's meeting. The need, there's a, there's a need that's met by depression often, a basic need. Yes, a need. It's addressing something that the person needs, whether it's space, boundaries, uh, safety, Constant worrying is meeting a need, too. Maybe the person has a need to be prepared (laughs) because of their family history or whatever. But you have to, I mean, get curious about what need it is that the worry is meeting for that person. And then you can start to see, oh, they're terrified. You know, there's, there's this terror of change. So the person worries constantly as a way to offer themselves support for that terror of change. And then you can start to develop compassion for other aspects of what the person's going through. Depression keeps going because it's meeting a need. If it didn't meet any more needs, it would stop. It gives you a lot to focus on when you're depressed. You have like your life's work ahead of you. <laughs> or when you're anxious. There's a lot to do. Yeah, it's never ending. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.